and welcome to Health Equity Now. I'm your host, John Gorman. Last week, I sat down with my good friend, Dr. Lisa Fitzpatrick, a nationally recognized population health expert and the unrivaled street doc of DC's Ward 7 and 8. We had such a great conversation that we're doing something a little different with this show and splitting it into two parts. In this second release, Dr. Lisa and I discuss her work in addressing vaccination hesitancy within the Black community, her lived experience as a Black woman in healthcare, health equity, and up-and-coming Black founders we should all be watching. And with that, here is part two of my conversation with Dr. Lisa Fitzpatrick. What have you learned in your many, many conversations on the streets about how to improve vaccination rates among people of color? Oh, I got to I, I got to give you a little anecdote here. You know, uh-huh. I, I, I play in a band here in D.C. and we had a bassist and a guitarist who came to join us uh, last fall. Both these guys in their late 50s, early 60s, phenomenal musicians. I mean, these guys played in their church band. And if you know anything about D.C. church bands, those guys are serious musicians. Yeah. And then one day. One of them came in and he was snuffling and sneezing and he just looked like hell. And I asked him what was going on. And he said he was sick and hadn't been feeling well, but he he really wanted to come and play. And we're, we're all masked in the studio. He's not wearing a mask. And, and I said, Tyrone, or I hate to ask, but can I confirm you're vaccinated? And he's like, hell no, I ain't vaccinated. He's not, I'm not putting that shit in my body. I don't know what that is. And I said, Tyrone, have you gotten yourself tested for COVID? He's like, nah, I ain't going in to get a test. He's like, it's just a cold. And of course it was COVID. So I sent him home and I said to him and his partner, I was like, listen, I I can't have you guys back in this little studio until you're vaccinated. And they were furious with me for that. I'm trying to protect the health of my other bandmates. And these guys patently refusing to get vaccinated. What have, what have you learned and are you cracking the code on what it takes to get vulnerable people of color who've been vaccine resistant to finally get their, their jabs? Yeah, some, but we also have to recognize that some people that they will never get vaccinated, but I, I, but I think it's, you know, 15 or 20%, which means there's a lot of daylight. There's 80% who are on a spectrum, you know, what I call the sort of COVID acceptance continuum. And so what what we've learned is that if you can answer their questions and be non-judgmental and answer directly what they're asking, tell them what you know and what you don't know, they'll listen and a lot of people have. We actually, we have some proof points around this. Mm. Um, We did some work with uh, a food distribution company, Detroit, Cleveland, and Atlanta. And they called us, some, somehow heard about our Ask the Doctor sessions, which were for this very reason, to yeah. ask, answer people's questions. So we have five or six docs, and we rotate, and people can come in and just ask their questions. But we did these live. Like, we went on to the, I went to Detroit, and another doc went to the other places. And 30% of those What's that? That's my hometown, Detroit. Oh, Detroit, yeah. Thirty yeah. percent of those uh, folks who listened to us and got their questions answered got vaccinated. And the the group in Atlanta, the gentleman called me and said, "I never would have believed it 
because those guys and most of the guys who work in these factories are 30 to 50 year old black men. Right. And we sent Dr. Dan, who's a black man, black physician to Cleveland and Atlanta. And he said the the gentleman who worked for the food company called me and said, I, I would have never believed it, but we had all these um, gift cards and now they're all gone. Like people took the gift cards and they went and got vaccinated. And so the secret sauce there is something people don't necessarily like to accept or hear, but sometimes people want to hear the message from someone who looks like them, who's yeah. walked in their shoes, who, you know, understands what, you know, Nene and them are talking about. Right. So, yeah. um, that that's been a big, um, that's been a big learning for us that it, the messenger does matter and the message, and the other thing I've noticed is people are just confused, John, because this is really complex stuff that's gotten sort of minimized and sort of oversimplified. And there's wisdom in the questions that help you understand how confused people are. So a woman asked me, why would I need to get vaccinated if my COVID-19 test is negative? And that was very humbling for me because it meant we needed to go way back to really under help people understand, okay, what is coronavirus? Like, what is a test? Why are you getting to, and so on. And so I think we just overestimate people's knowledge. And that's what comes through on all, in all the Dr. Lisa on the street conversations yeah. that um, people, we talk over people's heads and we think they understand because they sort of are yeah. quietly listening or shaking their head or nodding their head. And then we think they understand. I had a lady ask me, how can you survive a heart attack? And I said, well, what do you mean? She goes, well, doesn't your heart explode when you have a heart attack? So it just goes to show we really need to find ways to reach people. And so that's why I'm so passionate about getting, you know, our content. We need to scale it and get it out to people because they're looking at stuff on their phone and most of it's junk. Yeah. So why don't we put our content in those places? Yeah. I'm married to a badass black lawyer and she throws this acronym at me probably weekly. It's COIC. Clear only if known. (laughs) Right. And, you know, we forget that. I mean, we talk this stuff all day because we're Mm -hmm. in healthcare, but the vast majority of people don't have this kind of exposure to this kind of language or these terms or the background on this stuff and clear only if known, you know, really should be a doctrine among healthcare communicators as well. Lisa, tell me one thing that you've seen out there that horrified me uh, several months ago when I really started digging into it, that we see typically in cities like Washington, Detroit, Baltimore, um, vaccination rates among Medicaid enrollees rarely above 35%. Mm -hmm. What do you think is that attributable to? I mean, is that the fact that so many Medicaid enrollees are working multiple jobs? uh, They just, you know, then they've got family commitments and everything else. They just don't have the time to go out and get vaccinated. There are obviously systemic access issues to vaccines and that they're not made as available in black and brown communities as they are in white communities. What do you think is really driving that 
incredible lagging rate, especially among Medicaid beneficiaries? Well, well, I think access is actually not bad. The, the challenge is time. Do, do people believe us about the severity and the, that this won't harm them? There are other issues around fear. Well, if I get vaccinated, I've heard the side effects are really bad. I can't afford to miss a day of work. I mean, I think the social challenges are really complicating people's decisions about whether or not to get vaccinated. I think there are some access issues, but nothing like we saw in the beginning of the pandemic. Right. The vaccines are, are everywhere. Even though we don't have a lot of grocery stores in some of our neighborhoods, we have a lot of pharmacies yep. and we, there's a CVS in most communities. And so CVS has done a great job enabling vaccine access. So I think it's more you know, social context that we need to consider. Are we doing a good enough job communicating the safety of these vaccines? And yep. are we telling people what we, you know, only telling them what we want them to hear? Or are we really being honest about some of the risks? Because it only takes one person to believe that someone they love died from the vaccination. And then it spreads like wildfire. Yeah. And so when people ask me, well, don't I heard the vaccines are killing people. I can't tell them beyond a shadow of a doubt that no one died as a result because guess what? People probably have. And they, you know, when, when you look at the, the data on blood clots and strokes and uh, some of these hematologic um, adverse events, they are, there, there are serious outcomes that we can't deny. And yeah. so when you hear healthcare providers and researchers and scientists sort of glossing over that, and not taking people's concerns seriously, we lose trust. And I think that also dissuades people from getting vaccinated. But ultimately we have to be open and communicate with people. We've lost trust, John, we've lost a lot of trust. And so- Well, and I would say since the Tuskegee experiment, we never had it with well, most folks <laughs> in the black community. Yeah, but, but I, even people like me, though, because I, I, I pride myself on being someone who's seen, especially in D.C., like I'm seen as a trusted messenger. I'll just own yeah, you are. But I've even had people say, well, I'm, I'm not sure what to believe. And that's a ding. I don't know if you saw my LinkedIn post the other day, but. <laughs> yes, I did. But that was real talk, you know, yeah. as hurtful as it might have been to, to have people say we can't believe you people anymore because you've lost so much trust and credibility. I, I just don't know why I should listen to you. And so that's real talk. And so I think we have to own that and then try to, in a non-judgmental way, deliver the information in the way they could actually consume it because people are tired of our graphs and our charts and the, you know, sort of the parroting the, the language, the vaccines are effective at preventing hospitalizations and deaths. They've heard that thousands of times. Like, what else you got? Yeah. So it's, I think there's a big communication gap if I had to pick one, the big one thing. Yeah, I would agree wholeheartedly. What do you, um, what do you make of the disparities that you're seeing among women of color, especially in pain management and maternal and child health and breast cancer screenings. I mean, this is, this is now issue number one in almost every Medicaid RFP that we're seeing out there. Um, and especially among Medicare Advantage plans, because, you know, these are key 
aspect of metrics of the star rating system that, you know, the plans are, are vulnerable to getting dinged on. Um, what are your recommendations on how health plans can start getting some traction uh, on these leading disparities, especially among older black women? Well, and women of childbearing age, especially. First, I'll just say racism and bias. They are insidious things. Yes. Nobody thinks they're racist. I love to tell the story about how I went to a community clinic here in D.C. I was riding my bike, so I had on a helmet and I had on this old holy sweater I wear, but it's warm because it's wool. And I to him looked like a homeless person. He would not let me in. And I said, I'm a doctor and I have a meeting here. And he was like, do you have credentials? Do you have something to prove you're a doctor? Let me see your papers. Yeah. And so where does that come from? It is so deeply embedded and ingrained in the psyche of people that they don't even realize they're doing it. And that's what's happening with doctors. Because the conversation we're not having about maternal health disparity, and I know this from interviewing moms is that we like to talk about the poor health outcomes, but after interviewing moms and interviewing doctors, there are a couple of things driving this. On the doctor side, they don't own the fact that they're rude and condescending and they don't deliver a nice experience for the mother. So the mothers feel devalued. It's a waste of their time, especially if they don't get an ultrasound. One lady said to me, well, the only reason I go is because I want to see my baby and they won't even do an ultrasound every time I go. And on the flip side, the doctor told me, do you know what percentage of these people come in and they already have some undiagnosed chronic health condition, which already puts them in a high risk category when they first walk in my door. Right. So there's there's work to be done on both sides. But I think the challenge for the health plan, because I think they can address the upstream health challenges, identifying high blood pressure, diabetes earlier and acting on that. But on the health provider side, how do you get a health care provider to not be hateful towards a person coming into their clinic because they're scornful? Yeah. yeah. And so until we can figure that out, I think we have to train this into people. Like yeah. people who are coming through the allied health professions programs. This has to be like lesson one, two, and three, like when they first get there and throughout. Yeah. But if we're not modeling that behavior, they're not going to graduate and be respectful to patients, regardless of ability to pay, race, class, income. This is what's driving these health outcomes. And I don't know that the plans can really address it. They have to have courage to address it. And they have to be very creative in figuring out how you actually measure that. Is it some kind of additional survey or um, I I don't know. I have some ideas about how they could, but I don't know that they want to implement them. Well, it was like that health affairs study that was just out that showed that, you know, doctors put disparaging comments about black patients into the electronic health record at three times the rate of white patients. And there's just inherent bias and racism in medical training, in medical trainees. And, you know, you're talking a generation to fix that, right? You know, John, this has happened to me as a teenager and as a 40-something-year-old woman. 
as a teenager, I had a rash on my trunk, on my upper body. And my mother sent me to the public clinic. And I, I still remember to this day, this young guy comes in the room, white guy, and he looks at me and then he asks me a couple of questions and then he goes out and he comes back with the older doctor. And now I understand what that dynamic was. You know, it was a student attending. Right. And so the older doctor comes in, he doesn't ask me any questions. He looks at me, he looks at my rash, and then he turns and looks at the student and he says, yes, I would send her. And then he leaves the room. And so the guy like writes on the paper, go down here and get this blood test. You know what he's testing me for? I was 15. Syphilis. Syphilis. (laughs) I didn't know it until years later. I was like, oh my God, that's horrifying. And then I I was getting a pap smear in the Harvard health system. This doctor was so rude to me. He, did, he didn't even give me something to clean myself up when he finished doing my GYN exam. He just left the room. I was like, this is ridiculous. So this happens because of bias and racism and people don't own it. They don't even recognize it's happening. Yeah. So, yeah, that's going to take a minute to fix. If they're um, willing. Yeah. Uh, but I think we all kind of know now, given, you know, all the inherent bias and racism that's been, you know, brightly lit by this pandemic. Uh, and I think even medical schools are, um, are really starting to awaken to this and it's, it's long, long overdue. Um, I spoke with our friend, uh, Dr. Nzinga Harrison from Eleanor health. Oh, I love her. Uh, Yeah. Isn't she amazing? A few months ago. Um, about the, the huge increase in overdoses and overdose deaths in the United States. I mean, this is obviously, there's two pandemics within the pandemic that are happening. One is overdoses and the other one's diabetes. Mm-hmm. How concerned are you about the impact of opioids in, in the communities you've been serving? Oh my goodness, John, I've yeah, always right? been concerned. Yeah, like the, Once it hit the Midwest, everybody knew about it. But we've been, you know, and I was um, an HIV provider for a really long time. Yeah. And there, you know, there are it's what they call syndemic. So you have an, you know, epidemic of opioid use or an op- um, epidemic of behavioral health disorders on top of the HIV epidemic. So this has always been a concern for us. Yeah. Um, but, you know, the challenge is when you think about why people are drawn to these solutions, what are they escaping? It's stressful to be poor, yeah. to be black, to be yeah. brown. Like there are reasons this is happening. Even if we have some support services, how will they be received when they go into those places? Are they going to be treated in the ways we were just talking about? Yeah. Um, but how do we fix the, the social issues that are driving them to feel that's their option? Yeah. Are we also educating them about, you know, how to do this in a safe way? Um, Do people know about Narcan? Right. You know, do they know about having, you know, someone they can call? There are so many. Right now, it seems like there are a lot of behavioral health resources out there, but I I think people don't really know about them. Yeah. We have to do a better job uh, making sure people know the resources are available. So, yeah, this is not a new concern for me or probably any of us who've been working in these communities, it's been a concern all along. 
if you uh, had the job of Dr. Marcella and you were the chief health equity advisor to President Biden, what would you be whispering in his ear right about now? <laughs> well, I love Marcella too. Um, I, you know, I think working within, having worked in government for almost 10 years, federal yeah. government, it's challenging. I think one of the, the best things we can do right now is to align thinking and funding because there are too many silos across the government working on the same things. How many offices of minority health do we have? How many different agencies have siloed funding around behavioral health or substance use? Are they even talking to each other? And so there's often a lot of lip service about the need to coordinate these services, but people don't wanna share their pots of money. So how do we move our ego aside as a government and you know, come together, collaborate. And instead of sending out money piecemeal, what is an FQAC gonna do with $100,000? An FQAC needs like millions of dollars to provide all the infrastructure support and resources to help keep people out of the hospital. So we're setting people up for failure. And I think there's a lot of money and power uh, within our government. But we need to be smarter about how we're allocating funds and the strategy we're using to get money out, who gets money and why. Right. So those are the kinds of questions I would ask and suggestions I would make. But we, we've known this. It's not new information. I was always baffled when I was working in HHS and now CMS about how um, there was a health resources and services administration that handled all the community health centers and the FQHCs and the Indian health clinics and the rural health clinics. And, and then there's the substance abuse and mental health uh, administration, uh, SAMHSA. And, yeah. and we literally stovepipe, you know, so many aspects of how we fund healthcare in this country mm-hmm. uh, in a way that and it's they almost don't talk to each other. And then they do not talk to each other. You're exactly right. And the office of minority health at CMS uh, <laughs> is rarely talking with, you know, the, the office of minority health at the CDC. And, and it just, there's crosstalk and they, they just don't get it together. Mm-hmm. And as a result, you get this splintered fragmented approach to this stuff that really kind of also mirrors the way we do health insurance in this country. I mean, there's, there's still no explanation for why you have health insurance for your body below your neck, but (laughs) everything above your neck is something else, right? For mental health, for dental, for vision, for hearing, it's all different product. It just makes no sense. Yeah. Um, I love that. Um, what, um, I'm curious, who are your idols and, and inspirations in uh, the healthcare field right now? I mean, I've, I've got, you know, notable ones. You're, you're one of my big ones because you're out, really out there walking that walk every day. Oh, thank you. Um, folks like Sachin Jane at, at Scan is, you know, one of my heroes in this industry. Who are in Zynga Harrison at Eleanor? She's just a luminary in my mind. Uh, who, are, who are some folks that you really admire? This is a this is a hard question, and I don't want to single people out because there's so many um, committed, passionate people working. Sure. But I think anybody who is trying to, you know, sort of push the boulder up the hill 
um, and doing things, you know, different. And I'm thinking about, um, I will single toy in now only because I think just to listen to her talk, like she's so pure in what she's trying to do. And I, she said to me one time, like, I'm in it to win it. And I believe her mm-hmm. because it's hard, it's hard to change the systems of care. But the, the challenge they're all having, myself included, is that the payment structures don't match what we're trying to do. And so anybody who's out here trying to enable access to people who traditionally are left behind, like they're all my heroes. Yeah. Because it's hard work and it's, it's really easy to like set up a data platform or, you know, offer mm-hmm. a SaaS and have a health plan pay for it because that's the thing they understand and can sort of hang their hat on. But when you talk about keeping somebody out of the hospital who's diabetic and they have two jobs and the medicine makes them run to the bathroom and they won't take it. Like if there are people out there trying to solve those problems, like those are the heroes for me. Yeah, absolutely. All right. Last question for you. You wrote a a great piece in Forbes the other day. Um, about the need to support uh, black and brown founders in healthcare and black and brown healthcare entrepreneurs. Mm-hmm. Who are a few founders in your mind that we should be keeping an eye out for? Oh, you mean aside from me? Yeah, aside from you. <laughs> um, we're, think, we're already watching you. I think, um, well, the, the person I highlighted in the piece was Jaleesa Johnson. And the reason... I felt so compelled to highlight her is because no one would ever know how brilliant she is and what she's actually built already. So she comes out of the tech industry. So she knows how to build stuff like she can code. And and when I ask her a question about, well, have you seen these um, these sort of deep fake videos? So if I send you a, a birthday card, it's like, hey, John, happy birthday. Those because I yeah. think we need to be doing those kinds of things to reach people. And so I asked her about that. I said, like, how much would it cost me to figure out how to do that? And, and she's just like, oh, well, that's that's only. And she rattles off like two or three things like it was no big deal. Like she could do it in her sleep. And guess what? She could. Yeah. But she has a passion for healthcare, And she has so many stories about how she's been uh, mistreated in the healthcare system. And she wants to use her gifts around tech to address the disparities in healthcare. And so she just has so much knowledge and so much potential, but she would be completely overlooked because she doesn't have the other pieces. And so I want people like Jaleesa to be married with um, organizations or people who have the skill sets that she doesn't because she she could she's going to blow all of us away if she gets the support she needs. Um, so that's why I really I wanted to highlight her voice because she told me my biggest challenge is basically people don't take me seriously because they don't understand what I'm trying to do and they don't they just see a little black girl and she's so much more than that. But again, because of our biases and you know looking at a little black girl, what could you possibly offer Amazon? Right. So, yeah, I think there are a lot of people out there like her and we need to find them and provide them with some support. I got an idea. You and I should do 
black and brown founders shark tank for healthcare. <gasps> Love it. Yes. That, that would be cool, right? Like that would be give, so cool. Give black and brown founders a chance to come and pitch uh, where they, you know, ordinarily would never get that opportunity. Yeah, absolutely. I love it. I'm I'm down with it. Okay. I'm going to hit you up for that when we get done awesome. with this interview. All right, my friend. Well, it's been absolutely just a joy as it is every time I get a chance to talk with you, Dr. Lisa. Likewise, John. Time for us. Thanks for having me on. Always a pleasure, my friend. We'll see you again soon.